One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a gourmet hamper of specially chosen stories from across our coverage. I'm Jonathan Beckman, Deputy Editor of 1843, The Economist's magazine of ideas, lifestyle and culture. And on your menu, Melinda Gates has a simple way to make the world a better place. And McElvoy tickles the ivories as she learns the secret of creativity and why the best place to make a killing in cryptocurrencies is Siberia. But first, the corruption of South Africa was our cover line this week. President Zuma is wrecking his country and positioning his wife to succeed him. Corruption is not just rife, it is blatant. Our cover leader argued that to save South Africa, the ruling party must ditch the Zumas. The opportunity will come this week. At a conference that starts on December 16th, the ruling African National Congress, or ANC, is due to choose the successor to Mr Zuma as its leader, and thus its candidate for presidency of the country. The frontrunners are Mr. Zuma's ex-wife and preferred candidate, Nkosazana Delamini Zuma, and the deputy president, Cyril Ramaphosa. Mr. Ramaphosa needs to win. The whole continent should care about the result. South Africa is Africa's economic hub. Its diplomatic and moral authority shapes Southern Africa for worse as well as better. Without its support, Robert Mugabe would have lost power in Zimbabwe long ago. And at the moment, it is the site of the most visible battle in the world between good and bad government. This should be an easy decision. Ms. Dlamini Zuma is expected to protect her ex-husband, who faces 783 counts of corruption. A victory for her would undermine the economy, jeopardise social harmony, a fragile in a country with the fifth highest murder rate in the world, and entrench state capture. But her opponent mustn't rest on his laurels prematurely. The numbers suggest Mr Ramaphosa is in the lead, yet he is not a shoe-in. The stakes are high for Mr Zuma, and his political skills are consummate. Those who bet against him tend to lose. Storm clouds have gathered over the country, but we argued this is a critical opportunity to revive its rainbow halo. The country still has the potential to be a beacon of prosperity and good governance in Africa but memories of its hopeful birth are a melancholy counterpoint to its dark present. The best chance for recovering that optimism is a victory for Mr Ramaphosa. To find out how the sun can shine again on South Africa, read our briefing in the latest issue of The Economist or find it online at economist.com. Next, our latest guest on our science podcast, Babbage, had a radical way to make the world a better place. Melinda Gates told Babbage why contraception is the answer. If a girl has access to contraceptives, she stays in school longer. She stays in secondary school longer. Her parents will invest in her education. Then she can delay the birth of a child and either go on to university or she can delay her first marriage. And she can go on to participate in the economy. And so we're seeing, again, the CDG report points out, then she's actually working in the labor market. That's how you really take advantage of this, what we call demographic dividend, which is, as you know, you know, having kids who are healthy, who are well-educated, and then can participate in the economy. 
Not all creation is inconvenient. This week's episode of The Economist Asks was the first of a two-part special investigating the nature of human creativity. Everyone wants to be creative, but are artists born or made? James Rhodes used to be a banker, but gave it all up to be a pianist. He has now released four albums, and he's made it his mission to prove that anyone can learn the piano. Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, went Bach to basics as she braved her first piano lesson in three decades with James. Nice and slow. And the right hand. Very simple C major. That's it. Try it again, right? Well, think about it. It's 35 bars. And we've done one bar in 90 seconds. That's it. What happens next? So it repeats again. It's very simple. Then in six weeks, you're at someone's house and there's a piano and they say, does anyone play the piano? You can smile and sit down and say, actually, I play a bit of bar and play them that and everyone will think, fuck, that's amazing. What an amazing thing to have done. And you can catch the second part of our creativity special this coming Thursday. But creativity isn't limited to arty types by any means. Our correspondent in the Philippines wrote in the Asia section about the jeepney, the product of a madcap mechanical imagination. But are these diesel-coughing transports of delight on their way out? Venetians have their vaporettos, Londoners their double-deckers, Japanese their bullet trains, and Filipinos their jeepneys. None of those other vehicles, however, is as dirty, dangerous and uncomfortable as the jeepney. They were first cobbled together out of necessity. The first jeepneys were made from surplus jeeps that American forces left behind after the Second World War. Enterprising Filipinos added benches and a roof, creating affordable public transport and a host of small businessmen who owned and sometimes drove the vehicles. Jeepneys were embellished with chrome decorations, colourful streamers, fairy lights and gaudy paintings of everything from Jesus Christ to fighter jets. Their owners lavish more care on their exteriors than on the rider's comfort. The passenger must crouch to climb in the back and squeeze onto an inward-facing bench hunched under the low roof and crammed up against the passengers on either side and opposite. Air conditioning, to take the edge off the tropical heat and humidity, is rare. The cramped space and single exit make the work of pickpockets and armed robbers easy. But despite these tribulations, many people are horrified by the government's plan to replace jeepneys with soulless electric minibuses. Angry jeepney operators drove in convoy through Manila on December 4th to protest against the plan. They say that most operators will not be able to afford the new models. Such expensive vehicles, they maintain, will drive up the minimum fare to 20 pesos. And then there is the fact that the clapped-out, smoke-belching jeepney is a national treasure and an expression of collective genius. More outrage than when Dylan went electric. It's not just jeepney fares going up and up. Last week, our Bottonwood columnist, Philip Coggan, complained that the surge in Wall Street share prices is getting boring. But as he warned Money Talks, our finance and economics podcast, it won't go on forever. Either higher interest rates or some disruption to trade either via war or by some breaking of trade treaties which makes it more difficult to transport goods internationally. So when one of those things happens, then the market will turn. And if it does turn, then the fall could be quite sharp. The problem is that investors can't see that imminent turnaround occurring. And while they do, investors are being just like Chuck Prince at Citigroup in 2007. 
While the music is playing, they're going to keep dancing. Philip Coggan, fleet-footed as ever, thank you for joining us. Thank you. If Wall Street fails them, investors will look to pastures new. A few years ago, there was talk of a gold rush in the frozen wastes of Siberia. But it's not shiny nuggets that they're prospecting for now. There's Bitcoin in that there tundra. A wash in electricity from hydroelectric plants. The region charges 2.1 rubles, that's 4 cents, per kilowatt hour, compared with 5.3 rubles in Moscow. That makes mining, in which computers solve cryptographic challenges to generate currency, especially profitable. And these days, Bitcoin means serious money. This week, the price of one Bitcoin hit $12,000, up 1,485% on the year. Yuri Dromashko, an entrepreneur from the Siberian city of Irkutsk, says he spends about 4 million rubles per month on electricity, but easily recoups that. Selling drugs and guns wouldn't generate such profits, he says, though I haven't tried, he clarifies. As the Arctic wind blows cold enough to freeze the brass bitcoins off a monkey, there are other, less obvious ways of turning a profit. Dmitry Tolmachev, an Irkutsk furniture magnate, developed a prototype modular home warmed by the server's excess heat. The homes cost $8,500 and up, and generate about $850 per month in mining profit. The Siberian dream may not last, but the crypto pioneers remain undaunted. Sure, it's a bubble, Mr Dramashko acknowledges, but all money is a bubble. And finally, once upon a time, money used to be kept in buildings. A diligent reader wrote in to inform us that we had grievously wronged a robber of the old school. He was a successful thief for 40 years, but Willie Sutton isn't even recognised for his memorable response when asked why he robbed banks, because that's where the money is. He had a far longer and more prosperous career than John Dillinger, to whom the quote was wrongly attributed in disjointed Article November 18th. But times and crimes change. Robbing banks is no longer favoured by the most enterprising robber. Technology marches on and the old ways of plundering go out of fashion. The enterprising thief has discarded his angle grinders and lockpicks. He settles down comfortably by his computer and polishes up his code. Bitcoin owners, beware. That's the end of this week's tasting menu. But if you're feeling shortchanged, you can find all the articles and podcasts featured in the programme and a wealth of other stories online. Do send us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. I've been your host, Jonathan Beckman. In London, this is The Economist.